This is Space Time, Series 24, Episode 8. Coming up on Space Time, the most detailed views ever of the surface of a brown dwarf. The maiden flight of ESA's new Ariane 6 heavy lift launch vehicle pushed back to the second quarter of next year. And China looks awfully like they're preparing for something big with the launch of yet another spy satellite. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have discovered bands and stripes in the atmosphere of Lumen 16b, the nearest brown dwarf to Earth. The findings reported in the Astrophysical Journal suggest processes are churning up the brown dwarf's atmosphere from within. Brown dwarfs are failed stars, objects which don't have enough mass to sustain the core hydrogen fusion process which makes stars shine. While some brown dwarfs are born as such, others start their lives as spectral type M red dwarf stars, which over time lose enough mass during the revolution to cease core fusion, turning them from red dwarfs into brown dwarfs. Brown dwarfs fit into a unique category between the largest planets, which have about 13 times the mass of Jupiter, and the smallest red dwarf stars, which are about 75 to 80 times the mass of Jupiter, or about 0.08 solar masses. Because they can't reach the sorts of surface temperatures achieved by stars, brown dwarfs glow very faintly, making them hard to find and study. There are no telescopes yet which can clearly see the atmospheres of these objects. A study's lead author, Daniel Appai from the University of Arizona, says he was speculating whether brown dwarfs look like Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system. The gas giant Jupiter is dominated by regular belts and bands, shaped by large parallel longitudinal jets, with an ever-changing pattern of gigantic storms and vortices in the polar regions. Appi and colleagues found the surface of brown dwarfs do indeed look strikingly similar to Jupiter. The patterns in the atmosphere reveal high-speed winds running parallel to the brown dwarf's equator. These winds are mixing the atmosphere and redistributing heat that emerges from the brown dwarf's hot interior. And also like Jupiter, there are vortices which dominate the polar regions. Appi and colleagues used NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite TESS to study the two brown dwarfs closest to the Earth, Lumen 16a and b, which form a binary system about six and a half light years away. While both are about the same size as Jupiter, they're each far more dense and therefore contain far more mass. Lumen 16a is about 34 times more massive than Jupiter, while Lumen 16b, which is the main focus of this study, has about 28 Jovian masses and is about 820 degrees Celsius hotter. The pair are estimated to be between 600 and 800 million years old, and they orbit each other at a distance of 3.5 astronomical units over a period of 27 Earth years. An astronomical unit is the average distance between the Earth and the Sun, which is about 150 million kilometres or 8.3 light minutes. The Test Space Telescope, although designed to hunt extrasolar planets, that is, planets orbiting stars other than the Sun, has also provided astronomers with an incredibly rich data set on the closest brown dwarfs to Earth. Using advanced algorithms developed by Appine colleagues, the authors were able to obtain very precise measurements of the brightness changes as the two brown dwarfs rotated. The brown dwarfs get brighter whenever brighter atmospheric regions turn into the visible hemisphere and darker again when these rotate out of view. 
TESS obtained extremely precise measurements, providing the most detailed view of brown dwarf atmospheric circulation ever achieved. While no telescope is yet large enough to provide detailed images of exoplanets or brown dwarfs for that matter, by measuring how the brightness of these rotating objects changes over time, it was possible to create crude maps of their atmospheres and eventually further explore the clouds, storm systems and circulation zones present in brown dwarfs. This is space time. Still to come, more delays in the Ariane 6 space program and China launches yet another reconnaissance spy satellite. That means it's got at least 100 up there, 69 of which are operational. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Okay, let's take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. You may be wondering why you need a virtual private network. Well, it's in the name. It's all about privacy. Do you really want big brother tech companies, hackers, governments, and who knows who else snooping in on your online activities? Now, you might not have anything to hide, but it's still really creepy, and it could be dangerous for you and those you care about. Also, how often do you run across a website and you want to get information from it, but you find out that they're geo-blocked? It's all very frustrating, and it's becoming an increasing problem. And that's where ExpressVPN can help you. ExpressVPN's a simple and efficient way to protect your online privacy. It's internet without borders from the world's leading VPN provider. So, protect your online privacy today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com space. That's tryexpressvpn.com space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com space to learn more. And of course, you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. That's tryexpressvpn.com space. And now, it's back to our show. You're listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. The European Space Agency has been forced to push back the maiden flight of its new Ariane 6 heavy lift launch vehicle to the second quarter of next year. ESA's Director of Space Transportation Systems, Daniel Neuenschwender, says COVID-19 shutdowns and technical issues with the cryogenic arm that connects the launch pad to the rocket have forced the delay. The development is going full speed ahead, which does not mean that you do not face some challenges, of course. But uh, I'm very happy to report that uh, the Ariane 6 development is uh, going ahead full speed. And in addition to that, and I think that's a key aspect, is that Industry just now started production of 14 launchers, Ariane 6. Ariane 6 was slated to launch last year, but ongoing issues forced the launch date to slip into this year, and that's now been further pushed back to May 2022 at the earliest. The cost of the project's also gone up by another 6%, or €230 million. Euros. And that puts the overall price tag for the Ariane 6 at some €3.8 billion, €4.4 billion. Now, by comparison, it costs SpaceX around $400 million to develop and fly the Falcon 9, the main competitor for the Ariane 6. We change governance. Governance by giving more responsibility to industry, to the private sector, while the public sector has defined the high-level requirements, which means that we said we want a cheaper launcher, we said we want an environmental-friendly launcher, we want a 
flexible launcher and this is absolutely key in the current situation to be ready to catch new markets and Ariane 6 will be the right response to that. Meanwhile, ESA is still hoping to launch the new Vega C rocket by the middle of this year. But Space Rider, ESA's new reusable lifting body space plane, which was to launch aboard the Vega C, has now been pushed back to at least 2023. But ESA will have some highlights to look forward to this year. August will see both the Solar Orbiter and Bepi Colombo spacecraft undertake gravity assist flybys of Venus, and the end of October should finally see the launch of the long-awaited James Webb Space Telescope aboard an Ariane 5 rocket from the European Space Agency's Kourou spaceport in French Guiana. James Webb is seen as the replacement for the Hubble Space Telescope, looking even deeper and further back in time. November will see the launch of the world's most powerful rocket, NASA's new SLS, or Space Launch System. It's carrying an Orion spacecraft equipped with a European Space Agency service module. That'll be on the unmanned Artemis One mission beyond the moon and back. The flight's designed to test the Orion spacecraft and the SLS launch system prior to the return of humans to the lunar surface in 2024. And this year we'll also see two ESA astronauts begin long-duration missions aboard the International Space Station. This report from ESA TV. 2021 promises to be a fruitful year for ESA and the European space industry. This year we'll see the launch of a new and innovative telecommunication satellite called Quantum, developed through a public-private partnership with UTELSAT. Quantum is the first satellite that can be reprogrammed in orbit for maximum flexibility. Another first in 2021 will be the maiden flight of Vega C. This new iteration of the Vega launcher is more powerful and allows for larger and heavier payloads than the current Vega with which it will share a launch pad. Vega C's first stage motor will also be used as a strap-on booster for Europe's new heavy lift launcher, Ariane 6. The development of Ariane 6 will continue in 2021, working towards the launcher's inaugural flight in 2022. Through clever design, both Vega C and Ariane 6 will be cost-efficient and reliable launch vehicles ready to compete in the worldwide launcher market, confirming Europe as a front-runner in spaceflight, while also securing independent access to space for Europe. Exciting news for Galileo, Europe's global satellite navigation system. In January, the contract for the development of the second-generation Galileo satellites will be signed. Europe will also launch two first-generation Galileo satellites on a Soyuz from Kourou in 2021. These satellites are set to serve as backups or replacements for the oldest Galileo satellites. As humankind continues to face the challenge of climate change and our impact on the environment, Earth observation continues to be a cornerstone of ESA's activities. The agency will carry on operating 16 Earth observation satellites monitoring our planet. Through these programs, over 250 terabytes of data are distributed to users across the globe for scientific and operational purposes. In the coming year, ESA and the European Commission will also decide on the expansion of Europe's successful Copernicus Earth Observation Programme. In 2021, two ESA astronauts will launch to the International Space Station. Thomas Pesquet will start his second long-duration mission in spring. His mission is called Alpha, after Alpha Centauri, the closest stellar system to Earth, 
following the French tradition to name space missions after stars or constellations. In autumn, German astronaut Matthias Maurer will fly to the space station for his first mission, called Cosmic Kiss, which represents the love of space. Matthias was the most recent astronaut to join the ESA Astronaut Corps and finished basic training in 2018. In 2021, ESA will start recruitment to find suitable candidates for a new astronaut class. Aboard the ISS, both Thomas and Matthias will spend a lot of time in the European Columbus Laboratory, performing hundreds of experiments in zero gravity. ESA will continue to collaborate with NASA in human spaceflight with the ongoing development of NASA's Artemis I mission. The Artemis I mission will see the first flight of the new Orion capsule with ESA's European Service Module, ESM. The Orion spacecraft and ESM will become vital for human spaceflight as they will fly astronauts to the future lunar orbiting gateway in which ESA is one of the contributing partners, but also to the Moon or even to Mars. While it might be a while before humans set foot on it, the exploration of the red planet presses forward with the continued development of ExoMars, ESA's Mars lander and rover, scheduled for launch in 2022, and the Mars Sample Return Mission, in collaboration with NASA, that aims to retrieve samples from our neighbouring planet. A lot further into space, ESA's spacecraft BepiColombo and Solar Orbiter will perform a near-simultaneous flyby of Venus in August. It will be the second flyby of the hottest planet in our solar system for both spacecraft. BepiColombo is on a seven-year journey to Mercury, and Solar Orbiter will be the first spacecraft to study the poles of our Sun. Science will also see the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope on top of an Ariane 5 from Kourou. This infrared telescope will study every phase in the history of our universe, ranging from the first luminous glows after the Big Bang to the formation of solar systems capable of supporting life on planets like Earth. Closer to home, ESA's Fly-Eye Telescope will be tested and validated at Matera Space Center in Italy. This telescope has been specially designed to scan the heavens for near-Earth objects such as asteroids, which could potentially be a threat to our planet. June 2021 will mark the end of an era, when current ESA Director General Jan Werner ends his tenure. Jan became ESA Director General in July 2015. At the time, he was the head of the German space agency DLR. With Jan as Director General, ESA saw a number of achievements, like securing a record budget at the Space 19 Plus Summit in Seville, Spain, and a renaissance in Europe's space industry, due in large to Jan's insistence that the private sector should play a larger part in Europe's space ambitions. Now it will be up to a new Director General, Josef Aschbacher, and a younger generation to take over and lead the European Space Agency into the future. China has launched another spy satellite into orbit. The Yogang-33 was launched aboard a Long March 4C rocket from the Zhuquan Satellite Launch Center in northwestern China's Inner Mongolia. Beijing's described the spacecraft as a remote sensing satellite designed for land resources survey, crop yield estimations and disaster prevention. 
In reality, it's actually a reconnaissance spy satellite, one of at least 69 equipped with synthetic aperture radar technology designed to obtain all-weather day and night imagery of strategic targets around the world. The Yogang-33 was placed into a 685-kilometre-high orbit. It replaces a satellite which failed during its launch attempt back in May 2019. The mission also placed a second smaller satellite into orbit, also allegedly for remote sensing of land resources survey, crop yield estimation and disaster prevention. The launch represented the 357th flight mission of the Long March Carrier Rocket Series, and it sparked more speculation among analysts that Beijing is preparing for war. Beijing's already showing an increasingly tough stance on Taiwan, it's thrown out its agreement with Britain on Hong Kong, and it's becoming increasingly belligerent in the South China Sea, which it's now claiming for itself. Fighting on the border with India has also seen an escalation with the introduction of new microwave weapons by the PLA. It all comes as a communique released at the fifth plenary session of the 19th Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party states that China will accelerate the modernization of national defense in the military. The document says China will comprehensively strengthen its military training in preparation for war and improve its strategic capabilities to safeguard national security and development interests. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study has found that the rates of suicide and attempts at suicide are more than three times higher among people on the autistic spectrum than for neurotypical people. The findings, reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, are based on a study of more than 6 million Danish people over the age of 10. Researchers also found that having an additional mental health issue put autistic people at an especially high risk of attempting suicide. In fact, more than 90% of people with autism who attempted or died by suicide had an additional mental health condition. Scientists have uncovered new clues about how life could have originated on Earth. Chemists at Scripps Research have shown how a simple compound called dimetaphosphate, which they speculate could have been present on the planet before life arose, could have chemically knitted together dioxynucleosides into strands of primordial DNA. The findings point to the possibility of DNA and its sibling RNA being created as products of similar chemical reactions, with the first self-replicating molecules, in other words the first forms of life on Earth, being a mixture of the two. The discovery is another step towards developing a detailed chemical model of how life originated on Earth. It also refocuses the research away from the hypothesis that life began exclusively as RNA molecules, which only later mutated into the first strands of DNA. The findings could resolve the sticky RNA problem, in which a strand of RNA can attract other individual RNA strands to form complementary mirror image strands, but aren't good at separating intertwined strands of RNA, in other words, DNA, thus enabling the feat of self-replication that underlines life. Chimeric molecular strands that are part of RNA and DNA may have been able to get around this problem because they can template complementary strands in a less sticky way that permits them to separate relatively easily. Previous studies have shown how dimidophosphates could have helped modify ribonucleosides and string them together into RNA strands. And the new study shows that dimidophosphate could also have done the same for DNA. 
A new study warns that the global land area and population in extreme to exceptional drought could more than double before the end of the century. The findings, reported in the journal Nature Climate Change, looked at the water available globally in things like lakes and reservoirs, in rivers, wetlands, canopies, even snow and ice, soil and groundwater. Collectively, it's all referred to as terrestrial water storage. Scientists found that this water is expected to decline over the next 80 years, especially in the Southern Hemisphere, driven primarily by declines in Australia and South America. Maria Island off Tasmania's eastern coast could become a new home for endangered brush-tailed rock wallabies in a last-ditch attempt to stop them becoming extinct on the Australian mainland. Last year's Australian black summer megafires burnt out almost 40% of the brush-tailed rock wallabies' habitat, which was already reduced because of human habitation and predation by invasive species. A report in the journal Royal Society Open Science suggests that an insurance population of the threatened animals could be safely established on the island as part of a translocation program. Well, despite widespread claims by many commentators, three separate studies in three different states are showing that there's been no increase in suicide rates across Australia during the COVID-19 lockdowns. The findings come as a surprise to many, as the link between lockdowns and an increase in suicide rates has commonly been cited to criticise government actions. Whether those actions are justified or not remains a matter for debate. But research looking at figures in New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria have all turned out showing no increase in suicide rates, at least not so far. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says, while mental health issues are on the rise, the suicide rate itself hasn't changed. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. I mean, it actually looks at a whole range of things and certainly has a range of implications. One is the accepted wisdom that lockdowns increase depression and therefore increase suicides. And this paper that was developed by Gideon, who's on our National Committee of Australian Skeptics, has a close look at statistics from a range of places, including in Australia and other countries, etc. And what it finds, as you say is that the number of suicides has actually either been steady or in some cases has actually dropped during lockdown periods. Um, yeah, that's not diminishing anyone who kills themselves. It's an awful thing. It's something that you would hate to have happen and you would hope to prevent. But on the raw numbers, as unfortunate as they might be, there is no indication that lockdowns increase suicide. That's not to say that in the future when people come out of lockdowns, they're still depressed, etc. But some of the issues it raises is that it seems to be as much, when there is suicide and looking at other figures outside of this uh, particular study, suicide is as much influenced by economic conditions as it is by isolation conditions. So therefore, when someone loses their job, they're more likely to suicide or, or attempt suicide. But the lockdown doesn't seem to be having any great uh, impact at all. And you look at some figures, uh, Gideon looks at some figures from Peru, which actually shows a massive drop in homicides, suicides and traffic accidents. Perhaps understandably that last one. But homicides and suicides have dropped dramatically during the coronavirus uh, situation. Perhaps people are just not going out to kill each other, quite frankly, but they're not also committing suicide. So it's an interesting situation that this was sort of regarded as the accepted wisdom not that long ago. A lot of commentators who are sort of anti-lockdown were using this assumption of suicide rates increasing as justification for their arguments. But it blows away those arguments totally. And 
And it's an interesting situation that everyone has the implications for accepted wisdoms generally. And that's something that the skeptics often fight against because there is a accepted wisdoms based a lot on anecdotes, which admittedly this one is sort of short-term statistics. But you've got to look behind that and look deeply and just try and find out what the true story is. And in this case, it's a really fascinating article. I recommend people get onto Health Nerd and look it up and uh, you'll find some very interesting information. And by anecdotes, I guess that's things like more people admitted to emergency rooms in hospitals during full moons. That's another old person's tale. Yes, which the skeptics have also investigated and found that there ain't no such thing. People are not admitted to hospital wards in greater numbers during full moon than they do at any other time during a lunar phase. So, you know, we being the spoiled sports that we are, actually checked out the numbers from emergency wards and things like that, and including blood transfusion figures. And then we found out there's no uh, correlation at all. There is a correlation between weekends that you tend to get more hospital admissions on Fridays and Saturdays, but that's probably because more people are out there. They drink and they have fights. Yeah. Or they have accidents, that sort of thing. What about during the holiday season? We hear a lot about an increase in suicide during the Christmas period, but the figures you're showing in this report debunk that as well. Yeah, the figures are not showing that so much, but again, you have to realise that we've only got one sort of Christmas and some of these figures don't go up as far as Christmas 2020. Mm. So you have to sort of look at it. But yes, I mean, the figures, for instance, in Melbourne, and yeah, there was a variation, but uh, the high of uh, suicides in 2019 was 73 per month and the low in June, July, which is the middle of the year, was 54. So there's some bit of a hump, but yeah, it's not enormous. But I would suggest that um, Christmas time, New Year's time, if you're left alone, everyone else looks like they're having fun and you're not, is a pretty depressing time for a lot of people. Whether that equates to actual attempted or successful suicides is another issue. But there are other figures in the same report which does show that there is no real increase. I mean, what you were looking talking about there was one single bank of figures. Yes, but I mean, yeah, I know, and overall that's um, that's that's true, but there are other places which seem to, especially in places in with very cold winters, so you're talking Northern Hemisphere and places where people are snowbound, right? That's when they are isolated from other people, nothing to do with a lockdown, a COVID lockdown, but again, we're only looking at COVID figures for this for one year, an incomplete one year at that, but uh, yeah, it's accepted wisdom that things do happen at Christmas time. It might be stronger in places with a, a, a winter Christmas than a summer Christmas. At least in a summer Christmas, you can get out more, even if you're maybe on your own. It's just less of a depressing season. But uh, the interesting thing about lockdowns and the impact of lockdowns is that Japan had a very low restriction on its population and their number of suicides and cases has dramatically increased. And the same for Sweden, which was counted as no lockdowns and their COVID rate has soared. And they're trying to bring it back a bit now through lockdowns. That's Tim Mindham from Australian Skeptics. That's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from Spacetime with StuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, 
access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more Space Time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel, and on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 